0: Uh, We are privileged this morning uh, to have with us for a few Chosen Minutes Adair Turner, of course, uh, known for regulation, but far more, a greater curiosity about his United Kingdom, a greater curiosity about the global economy. Uh, Lord Turner uh, with FSA and and regulation and far more now uh, with his Institute for New Economic uh, Thinking. Uh, The myths that we have of China, Lord Turner, are remarkable. They go back to the opium wars, and back before that, we take museum tours. But I would suggest that so many of us don't understand the present China. Why are you a China optimist, given what you see of the present China?
1: Well, I I go to China four or five times a year. I was there just uh, two uh, weeks ago for the China Development Forum. I've been following it very carefully. I, I think they followed a very, very successful strategy to get to middle income level. They're no longer a sort of emerging developing economy. They're they're at middle income uh, level. And what they're setting out now is a very clear strategy to go up the value chain of manufacturing, to become a high-tech country. And I think they're gonna do it. Because if you look across a whole load of different technologies, if you look across new energy technologies like batteries, like electric vehicles, if you look at uh, artificial intelligence at Alibaba at 10 cents, These guys are no longer reliant on finding and transferring Western technology. They are going to become technology developers at the frontier. And I think they've got a sweet spot combination at the moment of the willingness to use the state to drive high investment and high R&D while still having a very vibrant um, entrepreneurial sector, private sector. And I think that combination, at least for another five or ten years, there are risks out there. and There are are risks from the political dominance of Xi Jinping. But uh, I think overall they're in a pretty sweet spot at the moment. And I think they are
2: going to continue to grow well and surprise us by their increasing technological leadership. So, Adair, if things are that good, how do they continue to justify the significant barriers to entry? for others trying to get into the market.
1: Well, I think that's right. I mean, they are still categorised by the WTO as a developing nation uh, with some of the special treatments that come from that. And there's a perfectly good case for saying those shouldn't apply uh, any longer. They are becoming a middle income and soon they will be an upper middle income uh, country. So, you know, there's a legitimate case to put pressure on them to uh, open up, to, you know, equalise the tariff treatments, etc. But I suspect that even if that occurs, we are going to continue to see uh, the continuation of this growth story. The big story for China, of course, is that they're now so big that they can't just rely on exports. I mean, they're in a different position from a Korea or Japan in terms of how far they can take the export-driven model. A A Korea and Japan could take it pretty much all the way to you know, advanced economy standards of living. These guys are so big that they've got to start switching the focus of demand through to the domestic consumer. That is happening to a degree. There is a
2: significant rebalancing occurring. So this administration in the United States has quite accurately accurately identified a problem and a problem that needs addressing. For the first time, we do have some leadership in the United States that is really pushing aggressively to get the Chinese to drop those barriers to entry. How hopeful are you that the China's that China's policy actually turns around and that the Chinese administration responds in a positive way. Well,
1: look, I think there's a case for them to equalise the, the the tariff barriers over time. Let's be clear, this isn't going to make a, a, a dime of a difference to the uh, a, a US trade deficit. The US trade deficit is going to increase this year because of the tax cuts and the expenditure increases. Trade deficits are mm-hmm. a natural result of of the balance between your local savings rate your domestic savings rate and your domestic investment and there is in the trump administration some people who don't seem to understand the fundamental mathematics of that so let's be clear there is nothing about china changing uh, the balance well, of its policies, which is going to eliminate this deficit as long as the U.S. is doing these r- large fiscal deficits.
0: Uh, Lord Turner, one, one more question. I've been waiting for April 9th because on April 9th in America, the Congressional Budget Office will do their first score, the budget outlook, I believe we see it this afternoon, 2, 3ish uh, p.m., What's your experience in the United Kingdom when the nonpartisan pros step in on fiscal analysis? Does it really change the political dialogue?
1: Well, I think we have a pretty strong uh, external check at the moment. It's this thing called the Office of Budget Responsibility, which each time that the Chancellor of the Exchequer produces a budget... They
0: come in and make an analysis. They do it uh, yeah. simultaneously. Come,
1: it comes out on the same day. Oh, my word. The we Chancellor of the Exchequer that. gives his oh, speech word. Uh, in Parliament, and that afternoon there is something from the Treasury, but there is something from the Office of Budget Responsibility. And I think that has actually been quite a strong discipline right. in making sure that you can't no. pretend that everything's okay by just plugging in a high growth rate.
0: I learn every time he's on John, I learned something. I mean, there it is. The British do it better than we do.
2: Well, on this <laughs> case, on this specific yeah. instance, I do think it's very helpful yeah. what, what they do to have a non-partisan well, branch that comes right out at away. the same time yeah. with, with yeah. their own forecasts. Yes, almost immediately.
0: Yeah, it's, it's it, it, the
1: simultaneity, which is the powerful that I think thing, because yeah. it means that by the evening news, the evening news is well, reporting what the Chancellor said and is reporting what the OBR said as well.
0: Well, dear Turner, thank you so much. It's a lot like Bloomberg Surveillance, John, where, you know, they come out and they say immediately, John Farrow did. Well, and I didn't, you know. On Is a that daily what happens? I, I don't think that's on a what daily happens. basis. That's, <laughs> when, that's a daily basis.
2: Lord of Dare Turner, great to have him in New York City.
0: Jim O'Sullivan with us, High Frequency Economics. Which is a good and beautiful thing after the jobs report. What did you learn from the jobs report? I mean, moldy, I took the revision, I subtracted it, grim. But inside the report, it actually looked pretty good.
3: Um, well, certainly, if you if you average things out over the last couple of months, it's pretty clear that employment growth is still pretty strong. I mean, obviously, the first headline is payrolls. And even though March was, was relatively weak, just over 100,000, first quarter average was just over 200,000 a month, which is up from 182,000 last month. Now, I was a little surprised the unemployment rate didn't fall this month. I mean, it almost did if you looked at the second decimal place. But ultimately, if we keep getting anything close to 200,000 a month, I think it's pretty clear unemployment's gonna keep yeah. on falling.
0: And in your view, is a pretty good economy. What does a president need to get the Trump economy to sustain 2.8, 2.93% GDP?
3: Well, when you talk about sustained growth, of course, you're talking about kind of potential growth in, in, in economists speak. And ultimately, that comes down to labor force growth and productivity growth. And uh, frankly, at this point, while we have seen close to 3% growth in each of the last three quarters, it's not clear that there's been a real change in terms mm-hmm. of potential growth. That Yes, the unemployment rate has been flattish in the last four or five months, but I mean on a year-over-year basis, it's still falling. So, I mean, ultimately, I mean, what what they would like to see is 3% growth without driving down the unemployment rate. And it's not clear that we've got to that yet. Jim,
2: what do you make of the volatility in the data that's coming out in the United States? I mean, you just look at the three months, the three payrolls reports for 2018 so far have been three really different payrolls reports.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's not that unusual. I mean, especially in the winter months when there's all kinds of challenges with, with seasonal adjustment, with, with weather f- fluctuations in particular. So I think when you, when you smooth out the numbers, it's, it's pretty clear the trend is still strong. And again, I mean, I, I, I think this is not that unusual to get this sort of volatility month yeah. to month.
2: Um, for some of our listeners who might not be familiar with Jim's work, Jim is actually one of the most accurate forecasters of payrolls on the street. Um, Jim, just lift the lid on what you do for us, just a little bit. You don't have to give it all away, but just a little <laughs> bit. How do you gauge a payrolls figure that is for so many people just really volatile and for so many people, they just sit there and think everyone just guesses yeah. the number before the number comes out? What do you do month on month?
3: Well, I mean, I mean, certainly you start with the question, what's the trend? And then you think, is there anything special this month, which will put you a bit above trend or a bit below trend? I mean, over the last 12 months, payrolls have averaged 189000 per month. I mean, I think that's probably a reasonable mm-hmm. representation of the trend. And then you have to ask, is the trend suddenly changing? So you look to things like jobless claims. Is there a big up or down in jobless claims, which would tell you that the trend is suddenly changing? Or even if the trend is not suddenly changing, are there... Kind of special factors this month, such as the weather. I mean, you talk about the volatility in the last couple of months. I mean, it's probably true that some of the strength at the beginning of the year was milder than usual weather, and maybe you just got some catch up and payback then come March. So if it runs ahead of the trend, you look for it to come back a bit. I mean, so certainly in the winter months weather fluctuations can be very important.
2: So how reliable is a high frequency data point like initial jobless claims? Because some people might say statistically that just could be a lot of noise and just to put it to one side, but you think it's really reliable just to to take a look at that as just a general gauge to take the temperature of the labor market in the United States. Well
3: I mean as with a single monthly payroll reading, I mean a single weekly claims reading can be very volatile as well. I mean we saw that last week, the big jump to 242,000 from 218. And I mean, the challenge in the last couple of weeks and maybe this week as well is seasonally adjusting for the timing of Easter, which varies from year to year. So weekly claims numbers jump all around. But again, if you smooth it, smooth them out, look at the four-week average, um, I think they're, they're an excellent indicator. And when you get big moves in claims one way or the other, yeah. it's usually telling you something.
0: What's the investment uh, scene look like? H- has investment actually begun to click in? Um,
3: I mean, certainly, yeah, the last... Three quarters have been pretty good. We've got close to double-digit growth in quarters. You look at non-defense capital core non-defense capital goods orders in the it's durable better. goods report. They're up eight percent year over year. Um, I mean, is it spectacular growth? No, but, um, but these are a lot hindering. better.
0: It's not. I mean, that's how you get to a three percent number. Yes, and I think we
3: are going to get three percent growth this year. Um, I mean, again, the first quarter looks like it's going to be weaker, although we've had this pattern in recent years where first quarters have fairly consistently been on the weak side. So I think Mm -hmm. you get a weaker Q1 and then catch up in Q2, similar to the pattern last year. So it is very plausible that we get a 3% year for GDP. But again, is that with the unemployment rate stabilizing or continuing to fall? And that's the key gauge of whether this is a sustainable pickup or not.
2: So let's move the conversation to inflation and spend a little bit of time talking about that. There are some important base effects over the next couple of months that might surprise a few people that don't follow this very carefully, Jim. Just sort of lay out what's about to happen with the data as far as inflation is concerned in the United States.
3: Well, yeah, we get the CPI, of course, this week for March, and it was March last year that we saw the big plunge in cell phone service prices, which held down the core numbers So the core CPI was down a tenth of a percentage point uh, in March of last year. So if you get up two tenths this week, month over month, which I think is the most likely outcome, then the year-over-year change for the core CPI will go from 1.8 up to 2.1. And likewise, when we get the core PCE number, which is currently 1.6% year-over-year, there's a pretty good chance that that actually goes to 1.9 when we get the March number in a couple of weeks' time. And of course, that's virtually at the 2% goal for overall inflation. Okay, so what
0: happens May 2nd? I mean, May second's a non-meeting. There's no press conference, right? Um,
3: right. So I think they pretty much stick with the script they have right now. And I mean, the message from Fed officials on Friday, including the chair, as well as uh, the, the 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 incoming New York Fed president, I mean, it was a pretty clear message. I mean, right now, the track they're on is continued, quote, gradual tightening. So I mean, right now, the message is they come back in June with another tightening. And I think that's the most likely yeah, but- scenario.
0: And this goes to something we brought up many times, folks. It's not original, but I just don't get this on meeting, off meeting, on meeting thing. It's the silliest thing I've ever heard of in my life. I mean, right
3: now the 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 the, the idea of gradual tightening is is moving no more okay. than once a quarter. I mean, obviously, you go back to oh four oh six, uh, when the measured pace consisted of moving at every single meeting, and there are eight mm-hmm. meetings a year. So, I mean, that's the message right now. Yeah. When I when I listen to Powell at the last. Um, press briefing, when he was asked about potentially doing a press briefing after every meeting, he potentially sounded open to it. He didn't want to jump into it immediately. But I think ultimately that probably is what will happen, in which case um pretty much all meetings will have the equal billing, but we're not there at this point.
2: Well, that's the problem, isn't it, Tom? Before the era of news conferences, every meeting was therefore a live meeting. And in the era of, what, that, radical transparency right, just, in, in central bank guidance, people have just assumed that it's a dead meeting, Tom.
0: I, I just think the assumption goes until it doesn't, and there'll be some exogenous event where they will be like, what do we do?
3: I mean, they could move. I mean, if they felt they needed to move more than once a quarter... They can do it. I mean, they've made very clear they can always set up mm. a, a quick uh, on-the-phone press briefing if they necessary. They have said that, yeah. They've done it. I mean, they've done a test case of it already uh, on their own.
2: Jim, just as a question, I think a lot of people listening to this conversation will be very well prepared for the inflation tick high that we're expected to get this week. But when you speak to market participants, how many of them are sort of actively positioning for a drift higher inflation in inflation over the next couple of months because of the base effects?
3: Um I mean, I, I think the question is ultimately where you go. I mean, it's one thing you get a base effects this month, but does it go from, say, the core PC goes from 1.6 to 1.9 on the way to 2.5, or is it just hang around 1.9, percent on a base sustained case? basis? And I mean, I, I've got 2% for this year, so up a little bit more, but continuing to edge up in 2019, so I've got 2.4% next year. I mean, I do think the unemployment rate is already low enough to put at least some upward pressure on inflation here.
2: And what sort of regime do we have at the Fed in terms of its reaction function to respond to that? Because in the Trichet years over at the ECB, it was clear that they had an inflation target of below but close to 2%, but the emphasis was on below 2%. Yeah. Where's the emphasis at the Federal Reserve?
3: Um, I mean, ultimately, I think they've they, they've got their 2%... Goal. I mean, they keep emphasizing, of course, recently yeah. that it's symmetric. So, if inflation goes a bit above two percent, it doesn't mean they have to crush the economy and throw throw the economy back into recession. But nonetheless, I think that is a re- if the inflation does keep drifting up, unemployment keeps falling. That's a recipe for the Fed moving at pretty much every quarterly meeting.
0: Yeah, I, but but again, we're not there. And what's so important about this discussion, folks, is Jim O'Sullivan pushes completely against what we heard from Bill Gross on Friday. How do you respond to people? saying three, four rate increases is not the way to go.
3: Um, I mean, we'll see what the data show. I mean, of course, on on the one side, you've got all the the, the threat of, of tariffs and protectionism. And yeah. if, if that becomes big enough and it blows up enough and the equity market tumbles okay. 20%, that's a different story. Assuming that doesn't happen, if unemployment keeps edging down mm-hmm. and core inflation is moving up and wages are going up even very slowly, then I think the Fed keeps on tightening. Okay.
0: Jim O'Sullivan, thank you so much. With High Frequency Economics, as Mr. Farrell mentioned, Mr. O'Sullivan's done better than good at the non-farm payrolls dartboard, as it would seem. Carson Bresky with us with ING Germany. Uh, as we look at Europe and John, I bring in Karsten, but John, I think the backdrop here, are, is a general statement, soggy economic data for Europe. Yeah, I mean, it's honestly all of a sudden it's like, hello. It
2: has been really, really disappointing. I should stress the expectations were incredibly elevated, but the direction of travel certainly won't be pleasing to many people. Karsten Breske, the ING chief economist for Germany. Karsten, always great to get your insight. What on earth is going on?
4: Um, someone hit the brakes. I don't know, honestly, the, uh, especially when we had German data out this morning. Horrible. Um, the, the, I think the, the, the worst year in terms of the first two months since 2009. So industrial production, trade data, all disappointing. Um, I would still blame temporary factors, snow, flu, vacation, because when you talk to people, when you talk to companies, they all, they all tell the stories that order books are still filled, that they are very, very positive.
2: So a global synchronised growth story and then an export powerhouse like Germany and their exports are down 3%, that shouldn't be happening, should it, Carsten?
4: It shouldn't. Um, and that is all before the entire trade war, so therefore um, I think really uh, let 's first blame it on, on the temporary factors and uh, we 've seen this in the past in Germany as well that there could be there could be outlier months, there sometimes are even two outlying months, and then the uh, the month following we, we get this big rebound and uh, when, when you look at the indicators, capacity utilization is extremely high uh, inventories are extremely low, order books are filled, so it still looks as if at least in the short run we should see this rebound in march and april
2: so here's the the important question i guess is this relative to very high expectations carsten or is something more sinister happening with the european economy
4: it's a combination of both john to be honest it's um expectations were extremely high so it was very easy to disappoint um, we do see a leveling off we do see this leveling off and sentiment indicators um... i think fundamentally the eurozone the entire eurozone is still um looking into a strong year, 2018, yeah. but the momentum, the momentum is fading.
0: Karsten, you've been a real student of the behavioral, of the cultural demographics behind all this. What do you observe in, in Germany right now? The Hungary vote over the weekend was stunning in its landslidishness. It was amazing how the gentleman, Mr. Orban, uh, politically just destroyed the competition. There's no other way to put it as a rigorous populist voice, and I'm going to assume anti-immigrant. Where is that trend right now across Europe?
4: It is a trend which goes really across the entire continent. It's a trend which shows that, uh, let's say, conservative populism is is growing, uh, that more nationalistic voices are gaining more and more momentum. At the same time, the the left-wing parties do not get their act together, and they don't find an answer to the populist voices.
0: Well, within that, then, is France with Mr. Macron uh, visible today with Syria and Mr. Trump and um, uh, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia visiting, I believe, really in the last half hour of visiting in Paris and being greeted by Mr. Macron. Can you bring that immigration conservative tone over to France or does France stand separate from others?
4: No, I think uh, France does not stand separate from from others. I think that uh, we, we you know, look at the uh, still the, the big gains that uh, Mrs. Le Pen had uh, had last year in in France. That there there still is a big support for uh, for for right wing uh, parties also in in France. And uh, I think we we see that the immigration laws will become stricter. I think that could be a, a, no, a normal answer. Uh, the thing is, we are in the middle of uh, globalization of, uh, of of digitalization. And people are afraid. Yeah. And what do they do? They they, they vote for parties which promise um, to, re, re, let's say, turn back the time. Um, you know, look at what happened in the UK. It's the same story. If, if a party stands up with promises that uh, the good old days will will return. Many people are still inclined to vote for
2: them. What does it mean, though, Carsten, to say the good old days? Because what's clear is that many people reach for an economic explanation of the rise of populism. And in Europe over the last 12 months, the economy has really improved. But we haven't seen populism fade away. For the UK, for instance, with the Brexit vote, at the time of the Brexit vote, the UK economy was really doing very well compared to the developed world. In fact, it was outperforming. The economics alone don't really explain it.
4: Um no, no, they don't, but you do see and I, mean, a, I think the UK is a different story, as you know when, when it comes to their relationship with the yeah. EU but look at the other, other continental Europe, Europe, European countries, there you do see that uh, with the strong economic recovery with the, the drop in unemployment rates there was at least less support to the extreme right parties I think that, that, that was the headline of the last 12 months, it doesn't take away um, that also due to the internet, uh, that it's much easier to, to, uh, to voice your, your views, um, to, to gather Momentum that we do see a splintering of the political landscapes. Uh, Germany used to be one of the exemptions, but we see more and more smaller parties emerging. We do see more swing voters across Europe, um, which makes it extremely hard for, um, let's say, yeah. the, the mainstream politicians to come up with uh, with a clear, yeah. um, clear guidance for where Europe is heading to.
0: Kirsten, we just had a discussion with Jim O'Sullivan of High Frequency Economics who well, I'm going to call a measured optimist, looking for 3% GDP until the trends are upset, four quarters out, five quarters out, and maybe it pulls back a little bit. Is Europe anywhere near 2.5% real economic growth?
4: We're getting close to 2.5%. That's I think cool. that, that, that could wow. still happen this in, in the first half of this year. I think that that is realistic. Um, the, the thing is, as we discussed at the beginning, the, these first Disappointing, um, and, and we've seen this so often in Europe. So this is why I'd, I think um, I'm a bit more cautious. But it is possible. We, we do yeah. have still momentum going on, and two and a half percent right. is possible. Three is, uh, I think, uh, okay. Impossible.
0: But John, just to mention, two and a half percent is within the rhetoric of Europe is extraordinary.
2: Yeah, it's fantastic. It's, but it's you know what's you know what's important though for the ECB that you can have that kind of level of growth, similar to the United States story yeah. after the last couple of years, yet inflation core inflation yeah. still half of the target I think that's yeah. remarkable too
0: Carsten yeah. uh, thank you so much Carsten bresky with us ING You're Germany great I really enjoyed that right now Paul Sweeney with us from Bloomberg uh, intelligence Paul um, Mr. Mr. Zuckerberg was made fun of on Saturday Night Live with a black T-shirt and all. I don't know if he's going to show up with a black T-shirt or a suit. And then his uh, colleague, uh, Chief Operating Officer Sandberg. Uh, I, this tone I'm getting in the rhetoric is they still don't want to be a real corporation. How's that going to be taken on Capitol Hill?
5: Uh, not very well. So I think um, you know this is arguably going to be the two of the most important days of uh, Mark Zuckerberg's. 10 uh, tenure CEO of Facebook. I mean, he has to go to Washington tomorrow and Wednesday, uh, and really convince lawmakers right. that they've got a handle. They, being Facebook, have you know, have a, a handle on the data issues affecting the company, uh, on the, um, you know, how third parties are using the platform um, and yep. they have to show that they have they've recognized They turned over New Leaf. They've recognized that this is a major yep. long term issue for them and, and for the industry, um, because up until this point, I don't think they've right. done that at all.
0: I mean, our Shira Oviday writing brilliantly and folks best in class yep. work on Spotify Over the last days, she had a stunning article this weekend, Paul, on how minority the public ownership is of Spotify. Basically, Mr. Zuckerberg can tell our good politicians, excuse me, we're basically a private company with some public shares. I mean, is that a fallback position?
5: No, it's not. And that would be a a huge uh, mistake on his part. And I I wanted to which I don't think he will make. Uh, you know, you're correct. He controls through his uh, super voting stock. He can effectively controls the company. But um, this is a large public company with lots of public shareholders. Um, and this is Congress. So this is not just going to a bunch of investors or to some local regulators. This is Congress. And so, um, you know, the, the job in front of him is to convince uh, Congress that Facebook can take care of this issue itself. What they what they absolutely have to avoid is any, um, you know, any growth in, in the speculation right. that there could be government regulation of uh, some of these uh, in, in industries. Yeah. That's,
6: that's what they have I to mean, avoid.
5: What,
0: what's important here, Paul, is you and I aren't on Facebook much. Pim is on Facebook 14 hours a day. All the time.
6: <laughs> I don't know about all the time, but I will ask you, Paul Sweeney, this doesn't seem like an issue just for Facebook, even though Mark Zuckerberg is going to be the one testifying before the Senate Judiciary and Commerce Committee, doesn't this mean other companies have a stake in how he performs and is there a rich irony in the fact that Jack Ma of Alibaba is adding to the woes of Facebook by telling Mark Zuckerberg that he really needs to take this seriously? I mean, can't you come back to Jack Ma and say, seriously? get exactly. ahead of a company in China, which I, last I checked, uh, is pretty strict in the kind of information that it lets out, and it's not because they're watching for trolls or foreign actors.
5: Right, and, and even Tim Cook is, from Apple has piped up and, and told uh, Facebook and its executives that they need to take this more seriously and be more out front of it. So, But I think you know this is not just a Facebook issue. It's a social media issue in general. It's, it's, a glo- it's an online data security integrity issue in, in the broadest sense, so that, of course, affects the Googles of the world and Snaps and Twitters and, and all, all, all the others, uh, including Apple. Um, so I think, but clearly Mark Zuckerberg is representing the industry writ large uh, over the next couple of days as, again, I think he goes in front of, front of Congress and says, listen, we in Silicon Valley, you know, we have a handle on this data uh, issue, this integrity mm-hmm. issue. Uh, and that's very debatable. I right. mean, and so, um, but that's the kind of claim he has to be able to make. And they're going to be able to, say that they are spending tremendous amounts of money. They will spend whatever it takes to get a handle on this. Um, They've effectively said that the shareholders, and I think that's kind of what stabilized the stock a little bit.
6: Paul Sweeney, do you believe the reviews that are posted online for products for companies that are sold, such as the ones from Amazon?
5: Um, No, I generally, you know, maybe a little old school, but I tend to to focus on the the brands and the sources of information that I know and trust. Um, But that's you know, uh, you know, everybody, there's so much uh, sources of information yeah. on the internet that uh, um, that's the problem. It's very hard to police what is in fact yeah. unstructured data across many, many platforms.
0: You know, Paul, I could probably keep talking about Facebook and their management, but you know, folks, to be honest, I'm going to get myself in real trouble. Let's talk about something more stable that's not a soap opera. How about that CBS Viacom? I mean, CBS is one of the giant financial success stories of the last couple of years. What's going on in the back room as they try to take Viacom out of their misery, Mr. Sweeney?
5: I think it's all down to price right now. We've had, um, you know, CBS try to lowball it with uh, a price yeah. and, and Viacom came back today with uh, their uh the price that they think is, is is worth it so now we have a bid and an ask and i think all it takes is time to find uh that price where the, is- where the asset will trade and then the, i think they've kind of concluded that less moonvis will run this combined entity for some period of time so i think we're getting very yeah. close to the transaction here. i mean
0: I, I hate to go to the gossip thing folks but that's what this left to and i don't need to go into the red stones and all that is mr moon's engaged in this transaction or is he deputized it to those under him, as he migrates to a successful retirement.
5: No, I think he's very much engaged here, and I think initially, you know, he does. He, you know, the reports were that he does not want to do this trade, and the reason exactly. he doesn't want to do the deal is because he's got a good thing at CBS. He just got paid sixty-nine million dollars for uh, the, the last year, so he's got a yeah. good thing going here. Why does he want to take on uh, a lot of turnaround businesses at Viacom? And the only reason he is engaging is because his control shareholder is making him engage. So uh, to make the best out of a, you know, not an ideal situation for him is um, buying Viacom at the price he wants and uh, getting the top job and, uh, for the time that he wants, and that will make it palatable for him. And I'm not sure there's going to be a nice compensation package tied to it as well.
6: Paul Sweeney, in the context of a $70 million annual pay package, which uh, Mr. Moonves is going to receive for his work last year on top of the previous multi-million dollar pay packages that he has received, the shares of CBS are down more than 10%. How come there's no agitation for any kind of responsibility or any kind of accountability when it comes to $70 million for his pay packet?
5: Yeah, he's been, uh, you know, among the highest paid uh, media executives uh, over the last decade. And that's saying something because the whole industry is extremely overpaid. Um, But I think the company has absolutely uh, performed and uh, given some great results over the last six, seven, eight years. And the reason the stock is underperforming now is because of the speculation that they're going to take some earnings dilution to buy uh, Viacom.
0: Paul Sweeney, thank you so much. Bloomberg Intelligence on short notice with a good briefing there on Facebook as uh, Mr. Zuckerberg attends. Uh, Washington, with I I believe is a huge staff uh, supporting him, uh, giving advice and wisdom as they uh, speak to Republicans and Democrats all on Facebook and all their constituents on Facebook. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.